1: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect interview where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, art and society. I'm Stephanie Boland, Head of Digital. This week we'll be talking to academic Julie Wheelwright about the history of women in military service from ancient times to now. Julie has written widely on women's role in armed conflict and espionage and her books include The Fatal Lover, Mata Hari and the Myth of Women in Espionage and Amazons and the military maids, women who dressed as men in pursuit of life, liberty and happiness. Her newest book, Sisters in Arms, Female Warriors from Antiquity to the New Millennium, follows the evolution of women in combat, from the Amazons to Victorian-era warriors, and the re-emergence of women as members of the armed forces in our modern times. Before we talk to Julie, however, I'm here with Prospect's digital assistant, Rebecca Liu.
2: Rebecca, hi. Hi Steph. You've not done any time in the military, have you? (laughs) No. um, I was thinking if I played any video games like that, the sort. But no, my video games are very gentle, so uh, (laughs) a very very limited experience. You're just tending your farm and doing doing quests for your neighbours, kind of.
1: (laughs) It is interesting, isn't it, though? Because I feel like over the past probably about 20 years now, there's been a whole series of films where you do have more and more violent women characters Mm -hmm. and that might just be because of my age there might be a longer Mm -hmm. tradition of this but I'm thinking of Kill Bill which came out when I was in in my early teens um we have a new live action Mulan coming out soon where she obviously joins the military um you're more of a film buff than me so you might have more insight into (laughs) the genre of bad women
2: it is it is really interesting Uh, I think especially with blockbusters like that Often decisions come down to bare numbers, so I just remember is there was a Catwoman reboot that bombed, um, and I think that was sort of used for years and years afterwards. Of that's why you never have, you know, an action woman lead, and I think especially with Marvel now, you know, if you are churning out twenty films in ten years, people are going to finally notice if there's not a woman on it. So it's kind of created a situation where their hand has been forced to create one. And I think Captain Marvel actually did really well, the box office. And then Marvel's main competitor, DC, did Wonder Woman. And that did really well too. So I think just on the bare market forces thing, um, there are now new precedents.
1: Yeah, and of course, Birds of Prey is in cinemas at the moment, which is... The Harley Quinn film. Yeah, the, again, the villain characters. I wonder though, because just thinking through these films so many of them it's quite a personal reason that women go and fight so kill bill um some spoilers for a 20 year old (laughs) film here um but kill bill is a revenge narrative she's out to kill the people on her list who tried to assassinate her and her unborn child at her wedding um you know something like girl with the dragon tattoo has got a revenge narrative Mm. to it Often when it's women joining the military, there's a a brother or a family member or it's to go in place of a man who shouldn't go and fight. So there's all of these like... I've been forced into this circumstance. Yeah, I don't want to say relatable, but it's often based on very personal things. Whereas what comes across in julie's research is is it's more to do with work and opportunity and i mean there's a whole range of reasons why women might go and join the military but often it's to be permitted to do things i can't do in their everyday lives yeah.
2: i just i just thought of another movie that popped up <laughs> just now but but pirates of the caribbean kind of has that narrative of kira knightley as you know stuffy society woman who then becomes a pirate because uh, it's fun that might be the yeah, one foil. that's true and she she's engaged
1: to a member of the admiralty at the beginning yeah. i would say I'm he's not a real annoying character he is yeah. <laughs> um and then kind of meets orlando bloom and yeah
2: gets into a life of crime but yeah what you say about julie's research is really interesting because something you'll pick up with her is the idea that's still quite widespread of women being inherently more peaceful, more reasonable, more gentle. And it's interesting to see how her research undercuts a lot of those narratives.
1: Yes, it's something that kind of comes up a lot, isn't it? You know, if you put more women into management or if you have women politicians, do they behave in very different ways to men? And there's so few places where you do have women-dominated teams, so... You know, the, the research is still ongoing, but I think we definitely see from prominent women in public life that be, they can be quite as ruthless as, as their male colleagues. Um, it's, it's an unusual view of women that you go, they'll behave in more moral ways, I suppose.
2: <laughs> yeah, and it's really interesting when those mould-breaking stories surface and how people respond to them of um, Amy Klobuchar, who's running for the Democratic primary, who just dropped out, um, you know, the stories of her abusing her staff. Some some corners of the internet want to sanctify that a little bit and say, you know, she's showing that she's a boss. Um, but it seems like pretty unacceptable behaviour. It's tricky, isn't it?
1: As well, because the way so many of these conversations are set up can make it quite confusing to talk about women's bad behaviour or allegations of bad behaviour. So, as we record this, as um, allegations of bullying around Pretty Patel at the moment, mm-hmm. which you know she's denied, and, and senior conservatives have denied she was engaged in bullying anyone in her office but what's interesting to me is a lot of the discourse around it is talking about her as a woman and a woman of color in power and how her actions might be interpreted differently and it's undoubtedly true that actions are interpreted Mm. differently depending on who does them but Mm -hmm. then it makes it very tricky when you do have an allegation being investigated to think through all of the different ways however on personal conduct can work it's it's not as clear-cut as you know
2: absolutely and you can kind of flip that on its head a little bit and ask you know not so much how are her actions read differently because she's a woman in the situation but rather you know what sort of behavior from women is rewarded and seen as legitimate in these you know certain industries
1: thank you Rebecca and now on to our main discussion with Julie Wheelwright So in the past few years, we've seen military roles here in the UK being opened up to women. So in 2017, we had the Royal Air Force open up the RAF Regiment, their ground forces to women. I think now Roman Catholic Chaplain is the the only post you can't hold in the RAF as a woman. Um, And then, of course, in October 2018, then Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson announces that all military roles are going to be open to women. This is a topic you've worked on for a really long time. What was your sense of how that decision was received in a contemporary moment?
3: Well it was fascinating to me that um, the reception seemed to be that this was something completely novel and completely new and finally we have women taking up arms, and the possibility of women going into combat. And actually, of course, women have been doing this since antiquity. Um, Certainly in Britain, we have a lot of, you know, they're very celebrated cases from the 18th century and from the 19th century. I mean, this was a topic that was much discussed and much written about um, for you know, for decades. And and it's in really interesting to me the way in which this sort of figure of the woman warrior kind of fades away. And then she kind of is, she's sort of rediscovered, she's constantly being rediscovered. And I think that this is just the most contemporary iteration of it. I mean, your book, you, you talk about
1: this going back to antiquity, you really do go right back to ancient Greek myth. And one myth that you focus on is of the Amazons, of course. And I have to say you really zone on it, the idea of it being mythological. What are the things that people most misunderstand when they think about that Amazon trope?
3: Well, um, the Amazons are really a kind of founding myth of the woman warrior. um, And the kind of traditional classical idea is that it was a tribe of women who cut off their breasts in order to facilitate using a bow and arrow, um, that they rode on horseback, uh, that they they shunned the company of men, and I and in some iterations of this myth, um, uh, they would capture men in order to procreate, and then if they gave birth to a boy, they would leave, they would commit infanticide and leave a baby boy on the hillside. Well, in fact, I mean, there's been some wonderful work that's been done by um, archaeologists um, over the last couple of decades, and what they've discovered is that that the real Amazons were a tribe of Scythian women who were nomadic, they were based around uh, the Black Sea area, but they roamed as far away as China. And that's and um, they were raised, the girls were raised sort of I- in a kind of gender equality sort of society so that the girls wore the same clothes that the boys did and they were also given weapons training. They also rode on horseback. So when the Greeks saw these women from a distance, they, they sort of regarded them as kind of mythic figures. Um, and one of the other fascinating details um, about this is that um, the stories would have been translated by in Greece by some of the captured slaves taken from this area but there were problems with translation and so the Greeks built them into these mythic women who, uh, who, d- who did combat with the gods.
1: It's so interesting how that myth has had its own cultural history as well. Absolutely yeah.
3: Yeah, so that, you know, we keep returning to that. And in fact, you know, the first time I I visited this subject, my book was called Amazons and Military Mates. And at that time, this was, you know, uh, 1989, and it was before that archaeological work had been done. And so that there was still this assumption that there was this sort of mythic, potentially real tribe of women who had existed before antiquity.
0: I mean, it's very interesting how, and I think you
1: described it perfectly there. This founding myth of the Amazon gets invoked in discussions much later on. So this one figure you hone in on in your book, Christian Davies in Ireland, um, also gets called Kit Kavanagh, Mother Ross, and she becomes something of an an icon to her woman fans, doesn't she? And they invoke the Amazon.
3: Well, one of the one of the. Uh amazing and interesting things about these women is the way that other women responded to these stories and sort of looked up to these women as kind of inspirational because they had gone off and done things that men did and Christian Davies is a great example of that. I mean she's sort of the doyen of the 18th century female warrior story and in her story which is published and may well be exaggerated but there's a wonderful passage where she describes being in a wagon uh, with a, With another group of women, and they're traveling through a forest, and they're, they're they're held up by highwaymen and Christian Davies because she's got her military background sort of leaps out and, and 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 sort of attacks the ruffians and saves the day and the all uh, and the women who are with her at that time describe her as this great Amazonian hero so the way that that story is passed down I and mean, when we don't know whether the women themselves understood this concept of the Amazon but we don't have any reason to disbelieve it because the Amazons also appeared in lots of ballads and lots of ephemeral literature at the time they were very well-known figures uh, but they make the connection with this contemporary female warrior and um, there was a poet who'd who'd sent her poems describing her as an Amazon and there was also uh, one of her female admirers who sent her hoop skirt (laughs) (laughs) so she was able to do both she could do the feminine thing and she could do the masculine thing. It's so interesting
1: even just in the the two Um, women or stories we've talked about there, how both of them are so figured against power that men have that maybe they wouldn't have access to as women.
3: Absolutely. And I think that this is one of the reasons why uh, both of these stories are so popular, um, but also why they endure. And and also, why the telling of them has to change over time. So, by the time we get to the nineteenth century, the way that Christian Davies is written about is almost as sort of dismissed as this kind of plebeian figure left over from the from the long eighteenth century is no longer considered a sort of acceptable role model for women. And yet, there's a sort of another there's another reading of that, which is. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of many Mur- Muriel Dowie who edited this collection about women adventures, and so she 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 reproduces uh, Christian Davies' story, but she also reproduces the story of Hannah Snell, who was also an, an 18th-century Marine, uh, also very well-known, also sort of, you know, almost a celebrity of her day and performed on the stage in London. So many Muriel Dowie produces this volume in which she she introduces people like uh, Christian Davies and Hannah Snell as examples of how women, you know, almost like counter examples. So these are women doing men, men's things, but Victorian women don't need to do this any longer. They can go adventuring in the cold seriousness of skirts, as she describes it. And yet, Many Muriel Dowie herself was a travel writer who is quite famous for traveling, for, you know, an illustration of herself on her travels in her plus fours. In other words, wearing male attire. So often there's a lot of ambiguity in the way that that other women view these view these figures. Um, And you often feel that, on the one hand, they're quite envious of them, they keep telling these stories even if they, by the Victorian period, consider them a little bit suspect, Um, and that, you know, they're kind of the foremothers, they made what women in the Victorian period were able to do, um, sort of subversively sometimes, possible.
1: It's interesting you talk about the plus fours because another big theme in in this book and in your other writing is wearing men's clothes, isn't it? (laughs) Women who dress up or go in disguise or borrow from men's costumes. Yes. Um, And there's so many stories of, you know, from Mulan and the the Disney remake that's coming out to, I know, the Terry Pratchett novel, which is all about a a monstrous regiment of Mm -hmm. women. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that maybe you might go undercover is really potent, isn't it?
3: Yes, yes, and that's also why I ended up writing about female spies as well. Um, but but one of the stories that I really love sort of revisiting was that of Mary Lacey, who was a shipwright in Portsmouth. And she she started off life as a domestic servant. She was working for a household in Kent. When, and,
1: when is this about, that she's in, um, so she
3: the 19th century? Uh, I mean, Mary Lacey was an 18th century uh, domestic servant. Um, when she was a teenager, she went to work in a household in Kent. And she describes, I mean, she, does, she writes this amazing memoir called The Female Shipwright. And um, she describes being in this household, she's really fed up with the role of the domestic servant, and she wants to do something else. So very simply, one day, she goes into her master's Chamber, into his bedchamber. She finds a pair of trousers that she says belongs to his brother. She puts them on and she leaves and she goes on the road. And while she's on the road, she meets um, a gentleman who suggests that she go down to Portsmouth because they're always looking for sailors. So she goes a bit further towards the port. And she finds a group of sailors and they say, oh, yes, um, you know, Mr. So-and-so is looking for, uh, you know, a carpenter's a servant. And so there's this wonderful description of how they pick her up and they carry her out to a rowboat. And then she's rowed out to the ship. And she is enlisted, and because she's she's working for this carpenter, he's the one that whose wife actually supplies her with the appropriate clothing, and she has this lovely description of having, you know, having a shirt that fits and uh, the proper trousers and socks and shoes and a cap, and she she thinks, okay, now I really am a boy, and, <laughs> and that passage not only enables her to gain an occupation, a professional and she works really hard, and eventually does become a shipwright. But it also enables her to have girlfriends. So this is another big theme in these stories that, um, you know, this cross-dressing, this transgression, enables women to have lesbian relationships and even though of course in this period and in this volume she doesn't use that word but she does talk about uh, female friendships and there's also a lot of play around this idea because sometimes um, she'll be on the working on the ship or the, the the ship will be out to sea and come back to the port and she'll go with her master to his house you know for dinner or for a party and she often describes other women flirting with her um, she describes a domestic one of the domestic domestic servants uh, taking her up to, sh- to share, you know, bed sharing was definitely a thing back, you know, in that period. So she shares a bed with this domestic servant. And there's a kind of playfulness about that. Um, but she has a quite serious girlfriend. And, you know, they, they pledge their, their troth to one another. I mean, not quite a sort of formal engagement, but they are going out together. And that's, everyone knows that. And in fact, w- there's one point at which um Mary Lacey does go back and visit her family. She comes back to Portsmouth and someone who is a family friend moves into the city and, a ru- and she starts this rumor that, Mar- that Mary Lacey, William Chandler, is actually a girl. And so William Chandler is actually challenged by one of the men in the shipyard and one of her one of her defenders says, "Oh, but he can't be because he has all these girlfriends <laughs> um and the story ends in this really interesting way because because um Mary Lacey also suffered from arthritis. And after, you know, sleeping in this very cold and rough accommodation for a long time and the kind of work she was expected to do, eventually she decided that she was going to have to leave. And conveniently, there's a fire at the shipyard. So she leaves Portsmouth and makes her way to London. And in her memoir, she claims that she gets married and becomes a good Christian woman. <laughs> but the real story is much more interesting because what she actually did was uh, she became a housebuilder. And she built a row of houses in uh, in Deptford, and that's how she used her shipwright skill. Whereabouts in Deptford? Just well, out of my own interest, uh, well, I'm going to go I can, this weekend. I, I can find and send you the address, but <laughs> Please they're, do. apparently they're still standing. And she also had a female companion, and we think that some of the houses were actually put in her companion's name to sort of cover up her traces. But
1: this, um, What you're saying about things potentially being a little bit in plain sight but also hidden and having that deniability comes up in another story of somebody dressing in man's clothes which is Isabel Gunn.
3: Well Isabel Gunn was was one of the very first stories that I came across in fact I have to say that Isabel Gunn was the reason why you know I started me down on this long trek. Um, and I think that uh, one of the reasons why I found her, sto- her story so compelling was because it really did give me a kind of entree into that world of, I mean, she wasn't she wasn't um, a sailor in the Navy, but she was working for what was effectively a sort of merchant army, the Hudson's Bay Company. And in 1806, she dressed in her, probably in her brother's clothes, uh, and signed on with the company in Stromness as John Fabister, sailed off to, um, to James Bay, and was actually working quite effectively well enough that she got a pay rise. This went on for 18 months, and then one of the Northwest Company officers, Hogmanet, and he writes in his diary how an Orkney lad was feeling indisposed, came into his cabin, lay down on the hearth, and proceeded to give birth to a son and and this was well it's it's an incredible story in and of itself but it was also really fascinating because um, the Hudson's Bay Company didn't allow white women or children to to travel with the men um, to the Northwest because they didn't believe that that white women would be able to survive in these conditions. And so Isabel Gunn was something of a threat in many different ways, not only because she was able to do the work, but also because, you know, she obviously managed to to survive in these very rough conditions. And um, sadly, you know, she was shipped back to um, the, the wonderfully named Moose Factory and they made her washerwoman and they, they put her in charge of the children. She wasn't very happy about that. Eventually, she and her son were sent back to Orkney and again, looking in the parish records, um, we find that she's working as a stocking knitter near the harbour and that apparently was a kind of euphemism for the for women who worked in the sex trade.
1: So she gets put in this position where she has this career and then ends up back in you know one of the professions women can do i mean it must be just i don't know if you have memoir or diaries from her but i know so much of your work is about these first person sources it must be really affecting to to read about something like that
3: yeah, well, sadly, in Isabel Gunn's case, she wasn't literate. And a lot of the women that we're looking at in the 18th and 19th century, don't write their stories. I mean, Mary Lacey is kind of exceptional, because they weren't literate. Um, I mean, some of them later on do. And um, sometimes they tell their story to someone else. But often, those narrations are not very um, credible. You get. <laughs> <laughs> Partly because they all conform to a certain kind of narrative convention, but also because um, you can see how they begin to embellish them on subsequent printings. So yes, I mean when when you can get a hold of a cache of papers, uh, diaries, and letters, it's it's fantastically insightful and deeply moving. And one of the one of the women who whose papers I I spent some time with was Flora Sands who wasn't disguised, but uh, she was an English woman who became an officer in the Serbian army and served with them for seven years. And one of the things that was really interesting about her story was that she describes how when she was a child, she wanted to be a boy. And there's, there's a wonderful picture of her, sort of a family, big family portrait. And she's wearing this sort of lacy white dress, but she's got a cap. Kind of squashed on her head, um, and then she didn't. She didn't marry. I think partly because uh, she was looking after her father. Her mother had died. Um, but she went on all these adventures. So she went cycling and she went mountain climbing. And I was thrilled to find out that she actually went out to British Columbia, which is where I'm from. And uh, she went to visit her brother who was out there working in a mining town. That was actually, I think, where she got some of her rifle practice. So when the war breaks out in 1914, she tries to enlist as a nurse. Um, she had been a member of what was called the uh, the First Aid uh, Nursing Yeomanry. And so she'd had some kind of first aid, some sort of medical training. And she tried to sign on as a nurse and she was rejected. So she decided to um, sign on with the Red Cross and went off to Serbia. And her the first thing that she did was, the, it was kind of a baptism of fire because she was you know, nursing um, during a typhus epidemic and also had typhus herself, recovered from that. One of the things that she did was that she came back to the UK and did a lot of fundraising for the Serbian army. And the Serbs just adored her partly because she had taken on their cause, but also because she was a sort of representative of Britain and they were still waiting for Britain to sort of send troops to support them. But she came back in 1915 um, and the Serbs had to retreat into Albania. And so she was given the choice. And one of her officers said, well, you can either stay here at this stationary nursing hospital or you can come with us. But if you come with us, you have to become a soldier. And she said, okay, I'll become a soldier. And she also describes, and this is, again, the advantage of having someone's personal papers, this kind of fairly rapid transition between being a woman in an a, in a military unit and just being a part of the military unit because at first she thinks she has to sleep away from the men and then she discovers that there's a really practical reason for sleeping pressed right, up against all <laughs> of the other men because otherwise she was going to freeze to death. And then, you know, sort of gradually she also realizes that, um, you know, the fact that she was a woman was really not that important. When they were in combat. And it was only when she has these moments when she sort of engages again with civil society that it becomes really problematic. And I found some of the, some of her comments about that incredibly moving. So she goes, uh, they, they, they're on leave in um, Bizerta in 1916 and she describes, uh, you know, they're having a kind of ball. And so she decides she's going to wear a dress to the ball. And she says it was kind of partly as a joke. um, But I sort of suspect that maybe it was a way of reminding them that, you know, she also had this other identity. So she goes along to the ball. And the men are all just so horrified at this vision of her that they tell her that she has to go and, you know, put on her uniform. They just can't cope with her. They in. can't
1: have her kind of coat. No, the, the, coach it, it, it's like too that.
3: ambiguous, I think. And um, there's also a very moving instance where um, she, I think this might be, this is at the very end of the war, and there's a kind of the crown prince of Serbia. Um, there's a sort of regimental dinner, and she appears in her, in her dress. And uh, there's also um, one of the women from the Scottish Women's Hospitals, Dr. Macphail, is also there who's a friend of Flora's and the crown prince of you know Serbia seems to think that this is a kind of like a dog and pony show or something and and makes the two women dance together because he says to Flora well why aren't you dancing she said well I can't dance with the men because I'm not in uniform and I can't dance with the women because I'm
1: a, a, because a I'm in a dress. In a dress.
3: <laughs> and so he says, oh, no, 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 you could dance with Dr. Macphail. And so she describes how just how absolutely excruciating that was to be forced to dance with Dr. Macphail, who also feels very uncomfortable.
1: So um, funny to think about the different ways you can access different spaces. And obviously in your, in your work, it's just over a period of time, it becomes easier for women to access certain spaces. But I was also thinking around class. Somebody like Constance Markievicz, yeah, can do these things in Ireland um, during the Easter Rising because she she's a sort of member of the aristocracy, right? And, and Polish via England, so slightly outside already. And you know that amb- ambassadorial role maybe touches on the similar theme of if you're an outsider in one way, maybe it gives you a bit of a Away into another identity. Yes,
3: yes. And and in fact, um, Serbia's kind of, kind of an interesting case because there's also one of the sort of precursors to Flora Sands was Jean Merkas, who was a Dutch woman who came from a very wealthy family. And she had actually been in Paris uh, when when the Prussian forces had invaded during the Paris Commune. And I think she'd been quite inspired by the women um, who had um, were sort of agitating for for women's rights. And so she decided to go off to Serbia and uh, uh, help with the uprising, the Hertz, the Bosnian Herzegovina uprising. And so, you know, there's lots of stories about her as the Serbian Amazon or the Serbian Joan of Arc. But again, she was able to do that because she was able to bring money and prestige and support to the cause. And I think that's why she got a lot of you know a lot of press in fact she did get you know lots of newssta- newspaper stories about her we've not even talked about Joan of Arc I feel
1: like that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other, a whole other, whole route whole other route we podcast, could go down yeah. but it's it's really striking just how many of these stories start to mount up and for listeners who are interested in your work we, we should say this is a theme you've come back to again and again and again you know whether it's women in armed conflict or women spies or going undercover as men what is it about this topic of women in warfare that you think is so compelling?
3: Well, I um, m- both of my parents were very affected by um, their experience of the Second World War. So my my father served in the Royal Navy at the very end of the war. I had an uncle who um, was uh, killed in. He was an RAF pilot and was shot down over the English Channel. Um, My mother was also what what was called a war guest. So um, at the age of seven, she was shipped off to Canada and grew up with another family. And it was really ironic, actually, that when I was looking at the story of Esther Wheelwright, who was an ancestor of mine who was taken captive by Indians, uh, the Wabanaki people in in 18th century Maine, she was aged seven when she was taken by the... um, by the Wabanaki and lived with them for the same amount of time that my mother was in Canada so I wondered whether there was some sort of unconscious connection with my fascination with that story but my mum came back to Britain and always felt sort of completely dislocated so that I I think I was very affected by those stories but also I think growing up I wanted to be able to access the war and I or, or stories about war, stories about women doing these extraordinary things. And I, I think I found them really quite inspirational, partly because uh, they seemed so ingenious in the way that they were able to affect this disguise and maintain it and and this sense of rebellion um, that they exerted. At, at, you know, when, when I was growing up, I had an older brother who I dearly loved but would say to me, well, you can, can't do this because you're a girl. And, you know, I was growing up in the 60s and 70s and there was still a lot of, you can't do this because you're a girl. And when I started reading these stories about... You know, these cross dressing women in the military, I thought there was still that sense of, well, they did it because they couldn't, you know, because they couldn't do it as women, but also that military hi- history itself had, uh, there was a kind of barrier there that this really isn't a subject for women to write about. So this was my way in
1: really striking as you say that it reminds me of an a. a. gill essay actually where he embeds with a group of soldiers who do sniper training in the brecon beacons um it's kind of the sas sniper school and he reflects on the fact that his is the first generation of men in in britain is scot's english family who aren't conscripted and perhaps there's something in that as well that when you talk about the military there and the lives of your parents and your grandparents, and I know my family is the same, it's present all the way down the family tree and now maybe it's not. And I wonder yeah. whether our sense of men and women and military power is, is going to change.
3: Yeah, yeah, well, well, I think we, we also live in an age where it's become professionalized, as you say. I mean, we no longer have conscription. Yeah, so maybe that has given us the luxury of thinking about it in a different way. I mean, one of the things that was really formative for me was going to, I went to Eritrea in 1991 during the, the independence referendum. And the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, which was the sort of main guerrilla army in Eritrea that was fighting for independence, had something like 33% of its fighters were women. And so I interviewed a number of them while I was out there. And I was so struck by how similar their stories were to some of the women that I had read about. I mean, you know, th- these were more, they reminded me sort of more of um, some of the Russian women who had signed up either with Maria Botchkareva's battalions or who had signed up with the Tsar's army where, you know, they felt that uh, they didn't have a lot of choice because, you know, all the men were going off to war. Their village had been destroyed. They felt that there was such an immediate threat that they had to go. It wasn't what they wanted to do. It wasn't what they would have chosen to do. And then there were other women for whom being in this situation was like Hannah Snell or Christian Davies that it gave them access to something that would have been impossible otherwise. And I think the other thing that maybe we forget about too is this sense of being engaged in this collective activity that, you know, if you're fighting for a cause that you really believe in, I mean, I'm not saying by any means that all of the women believed in this, but some of them did. And so that would have been another very powerful incentive for going off.
1: We've not spoken very much about the vulnerability you can have in that situation, have we, of being... You know, even today, being a a woman in a regiment can put you in a very tricky position.
3: Absolutely. And one of the things that was, was kind of a bit, little bit shocking was um, going on to the Everyday Sexism website and looking at the testimonies from women who are in the military now and just talking about the high levels of sexual harassment. And also, you know, still this feeling that they're not wanted, that they're not accepted and that they're they really have to, you know, psychologically, it's really, really tough. Um, And I did quote from, um, you know, that Senate hearing that was held just last year, um, where, you know, you had these very high ranking uh, women officers who were talking about their own experience of being sexually harassed. And I think it's only, you know, we are in a kind of post-Me Too moment where it is possible to talk about those vulnerabilities.
1: Women in submarines is one I always think is such an ongoing debate about whether or not women should be put in in that situation and you know whether men are happy to, to have them around in that space one thing I wanted to ask you about is there's this belief you sometimes hear repeated that if women ruled the world we wouldn't have any more war but you know your work come, keeps coming back to this assumption that there's a natural association between combat and masculinity do you think we're starting to question this idea of women as being inherently peaceful and good or some women we should say
3: Well, it's funny that you raise that because I, you know, also when I started, this was around the time of Greenham Common and uh, the peace movement. I was absolutely a believer in the peace movement, but I did not believe that women were sort of inherently more pacifist than men because I kept finding these women who were complete anomalies. And I thought, well, how do you account for that? And are we making some kind of well, we are making a vast assumption, I think, that if we believe that women are inherently more pacifist than men. What women don't have access to is political power in the same way that men do, and they never have. And, I, and, and so one of the, thing, the themes that came through revisiting this material was the way in which so many women down the ages, sort of, you know, you can kind of go back to the French Revolution when you have a small number of women who were allowed to become soldiers, onwards, they look at the activity of women in combat or women as serving soldiers as an entree into politics and to Political participation, and that's also what I found when I interviewed the women in Eritrea. Because they thought, okay, well, now that we've done this, you know, we 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 will have women will become politicians, and we will women will have equal participation in the future of the country. And sadly, that's not what happens. That didn't happen there, and it certainly hasn't happened anywhere else. I mean, we can go back to the, you know, the suffragettes and the suffragettes. Um, You know, again, I was so intrigued to sort of realize not only the. ...between Emmeline Pankhurst and Maria Bochkareva... ...who organized the Women's Battalion of Death. I mean, Emmeline Pankhurst went out in 1917... ...and reviewed the troops, but well, also...
1: Photograph, photograph, isn't there? There's an amazing
3: photograph, yes. But also that Maria Bochkareva... ...was um, sponsored by an American uh, feminist... Um, ...to come out to, uh, to Washington, D.C. ...and actually had this sort of audience with Woodrow Wilson... Um, you know, arguing for, I guess it was the counter-revolution. Then, and Maria botch goes back to Siberia and is executed. But, um, you know, these the, these feminists, suffragettes, some of them actually look to the female soldiers. So we go back to the woman warrior, we go back to Joan of Arc, we go back to the Amazons. And this idea that this is this is what will give us access to that political participation that we should have a right to.
1: I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And that's all from us this week. Thanks so much for joining us on the Prospect Interview and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Finally, if you did enjoy the prospect interview, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Your producer this week was Rebecca Liu, and my name is Stephanie Boland. Goodbye, and see you soon.